0: Hello everyone and welcome to Epimonia's third episode of its Safer Room podcast. Epimonia is a company that was started in 2017 by Mohamed Balim, a Somali refugee living in the U.S. At Epimonia, we sell bracelets made out of life jackets worn by refugees on their dangerous journey across the Mediterranean Sea to Greece where the jackets are collected. All of our products are made by refugees in the U.S. and our profits go to our nonprofit partners who support refugees in the U.S. Our bracelet is a symbol of strength for refugees living in the U.S. that no matter where you're from or how you got here, you are as much a part of our country and you have just as much to offer as U.S. born citizens. You can buy our products and learn more at epimonia.com. Every Wednesday, we interview a new guest to hear their take on the refugee crisis and hear what they're doing to help. The name Safer Room comes from a quote from U.S. Iranian author Dina Nayeri It is the obligation of every person born in a safer room to open the door when someone in danger knocks. Today's guest is co founder of nonprofit Horn of Hope and senior legislative aide at the Ohio Senate, Anissa Liban. Anissa, hi. How are you doing today? Hey, Willow. I'm doing so
1: good. First, and you know, I really want to thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to be one of your first guests. I have been such a fan of Epimonia for a couple of years now, and have really been inspired by you know the founder, um, uh, you know, of the social enterprise and nonprofit.
0: And so, I'm really honored to be here today. Thank you so much. That means a lot. We are a young company, like I said, founded in 2017. So it means a lot to know that people are still supporting us from the very beginning. Um, So I wanted to start by talking about the nonprofit that you co-founded. I know that in 2015, nonprofits and NGOs were starting to realize that they could use social media a lot more as a, a tool for publicity and for getting donations and spreading awareness. And I think to take that one step further today, I would say that in 2020 now, there are a lot of people who are using social media as their own tool to find causes to help And people want to help on social media, even it's become kind of a trend to have kind of performative activism almost. Um, But also just because our generation is growing up as the most liberal and educated generation ever. So I was wondering what you thought about that, about how it was in 2015 working in the nonprofit sector versus today working in the activism of social media. Yes. No, first off, Willow, I'm so happy you mentioned that because honestly,
1: Again, just taking it back to when Yasmeen and I were kind of at our peak, right? Like, let's even skip over the pe- first two years. I want to say 2017, when we were really, like, getting so much attention on social media. We were using crowdfunding as a means to spread awareness. We mm-hmm. were partnering with nonprofits like Araha, based in Minnesota, you know, with fosia Health Foundation. So many great foundations that were doing good work, right? And they were run by, you know, older uh, folks, right? And, there's, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting to kind of see how the traditional... Um, Nonprofit leaders were kind of going about fundraising versus how me and a lot of other, you know, newly emerging leaders were using our social media as a tool to get publicity out, to get, you know, um, people not just within the states, but really abroad to learn about our causes. And so that's how we were really able to kind of be strategic. Um, I personally have no coding skills. So (laughs) I relied so much on Squarespace at the time. Um, I remember one day just kind of, you know, looking for websites and ways to, you know, get our website up because we really wanted to have a blog and, um, you know, we just wanted to be very transparent. And that was very important to us because I know a lot of people my age are really hesitant to donate to nonprofits because they don't even know where their money goes. Right. We right. do not once. There's no account. You know, we we may get a letter in the email, but so few organizations in this world really follow all the way through and tell you exactly where every penny went and I yeah. guess i was so inspired by charity water and how transparent they were how you know uh consistent they were with their um you know messages to donors and so yes me and i also made that admission to always when we are collaborating with nonprofits to let people know exactly where their dollars were going and we did a really good job docu- documenting that on our website and i really think that's what inspired so many young people today how I was able to meet the co-founder of Epimonia and so many others as well. Um, I think it was really just kind of using social media to our advantage. And today, you know, although Yasmeen and I aren't active with Horn of Hope, we still have so many people from everywhere, honestly, letting us know like, hey, I remember you guys, like that was such a, you know, powerful nonprofit. How can I help you guys to do your work? That's something that I... Just graduated from my university. I minored in nonprofit studies, majored in public affairs. So I absolutely, you know, am making it a lifelong mission to remain in the nonprofit sector. I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm as equipped, as trained, and educated as I possibly can be to really tackle, um, you know, all the things that are happening in Somalia right now.
0: Yeah, and another example of the difference between how activism is seen now versus five years ago is I think that so I know that you've been talking about the crisis in Yemen since 2017 and I'm sure even earlier and now today there are so many people sharing information about the crisis in Yemen online especially within the past week I've noticed there's been so much so I was wondering if you think that this saturation of the crisis in Yemen and other crises on social media helps and I because I imagine that even if people are just reposting informational content in a purely for performative reasons, yes. that's still helpful to an extent because it still does put that information in front of more people's eyes. But I was wondering where you differentiate between performative activism and then actual activism. Man, that Willow, that is
1: such a complicated question because I'm not going to lie to you, right? I don't know it all, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I was just I just organized a protest last weekend for the Black Lives Matter movement here in Columbus, Ohio. And we had such a great turnout rate. And I posted no images of myself, you know, on any of my social media platforms. um, Just because I never really personally document the work that I do in the community. But I know Mm -hmm. so many people genuinely are doing great work on the ground and they are proud to show it. Right. So I Mm -hmm. personally not want to ever call anyone out and say, oh you know you were at this event and that was performative or you did this and you only did it for these means because we just don't know people's intentions right i'm a big believer in people giving people credit for showing up i think that is literally Mm -hmm. all that matters so in this type of world right now for me if someone is just retweeting important content that is shedding light on such a huge issue like a humanitarian crisis that's happening in yemen I'm going to respect that. And so for me, I think that's so important. But to kind of answer your question, I think the biggest or the most striking differences between something being performative, in my opinion, versus being very genuine is kind of seeing patterns, right? Like um, when people were blocking out on, you know, for the Black Lives Matter movement a couple of Tuesdays ago, right? Right. It was very visible on some people's social media pages that they weren't even following up with posts days later and so for mm-hmm. me that is clearly performative i think it's one thing to spread awareness and to shed light on an issue but if you're not following up and falling through with action steps or at least providing resources right i do feel that that's very performative um my personal thoughts on this but i'm still learning and there are so many new concepts that are new to me like even performance activism right i don't think a couple of years ago, people would even really know what that is. But I mm-hmm. think there are so many young people like you and I who are, you know, checking people honestly and just putting people online and just saying, you know, I need to hold you accountable because I know you could have done way, you know, you could have done more. Um, you did show up and that's great. But like, I would have loved to see a little bit more um, from you. And so I personally, I want to say in 2015 or 2016, I'm sorry, I was invited by ARAHA to um, come to Minnesota it was a wonderful trip and I got to write a blog on their website which is still up specifically talking about Yemen right and mm-hmm. till this day like I literally will do my very best to shed light on what's happening in Yemen just yesterday I was tweeting resources out for people right but mm-hmm. one can argue it's because Anisa, you're in this space you know this is just the work that you do and I don't really think that's true right like I think anyone who is a compassionate individual who sees what's happening who has a decent following should be able to use their social medias to get important messages out especially when it's being saturated right i think there's just so many things happening on social media today from like the black lives matter movement to just recently women getting the courage to you know share their traumatic you know sexual assault experiences to people you know speaking about discrimination right there's just mm-hmm. so many hard topics that are happening in the world today and unfortunately you have crises like what's happening in Yemen overshadowed in my opinion um, and so I think as a younger generation we just kind of need to figure out innovative solutions to figure out how we can get good reporting and messaging out while still advocating for other important causes so it's really challenging um, but I do think that every I would empower every individual to try and use their social medias as a tool um, I know it's helped me and I can definitely say that with 100% confidence
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that one of the most transformative parts of this current wave of the Black Lives Matter movement has been, at least for me, it's been made very clear that, whereas before I saw a very strict divide between someone who used social media strictly for just social media and and pleasure versus someone who was very, very clearly very political and an activist on their social media. And I never really saw like a blend And so I know that I would always think that I didn't want to get into politics on social media. And I was worried that maybe if I supported one cause, people would ask why I wasn't supporting this cause. Mm -hmm. But now I'm seeing that as I'm posting about Black Lives Matter and the crisis in Yemen and refugees on social media, it doesn't need to be one or the other. Right now, I think it's really important to really, really flood social media with specifically political things. But I think that afterwards, in a couple months or even in a year that once things, hopefully, once more change happens, then social media can start to see more normal posts, but keeping up the activism at the same time.
1: No, and, I, and I'll circle back to what you just said, because I feel that that is so powerful. It's just kind of really knowing, like, there's nothing wrong with getting political. I think so many people are afraid, and so many people want to say, oh, I want to remain apolitical because I'm a mm-hmm. nonprofit," mm-hmm. or I want to remain, you know, neutral. And I just feel like, In my personal opinion, I think that is a cop out. And it really bothers me personally, again, and I'm sure other viewers may think differently. But it really, really upsets me when I see so many orgs and individuals, you know, pull the I need to be a political card because I just don't think some of these issues are black and white. I think it's very, I mean, they're very black and white, right? It's very obvious that it's important to talk about certain issues and there's nothing wrong with it. And I think, um, especially talking about humanitarian, you know, efforts that anyone, what, whatever your background is, um, should have the compassion to speak up when it's needed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so I want to shift the conversation a little bit now and talk about a theme that you've talked about before, um, which is Afro pessimism and Afro optimism, so I was wondering if you could, first off, explain what that is, because I'm sure you could explain it better than I could. And then second off, um, I was wondering how you think that Afro-pessimism and Afro-optimism follows African refugees and immigrants to the U.S., even if they've been living in the U.S. For, for you know decades or if lots of generations of their families have been living there. How do you think that Afro-pessimism and optimism follows African-Americans and the Black diaspora in the U.S.? Man,
1: what a nice question. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm saying what a nice question <laughs> it's to okay. all of
0: these. But no, they, it's so important because
1: um, for me, right, like if you just look at the name of our nonprofit, Horn of Hope, mm-hmm. um, it was so important for my co-founder and I to title our nonprofit something that was truly liberating, something that was very positive for so many obvious reasons. Um, I shared why I was so important inspired by Charity Water personally, right? Mm -hmm. I know there are so many nonprofits today that only share negative images of Africa, negative images of, you know, communities that are struggling. Um, And so for me, I just really wanted to take control of the narrative um, as a Black, you know, Somali woman. Um, I really wanted to make sure that the work that we're doing um, was positively reflecting, you know, what was happening um, in those regions. And so I think so many people aren't familiar with this concept, um, with both concepts. Um, And if they are familiar with it, they don't really understand the importance of kind of creating like a framework. And I'll kind of elaborate a little bit about that. So I don't know, Willow, if you're familiar with the concept of like learned helplessness. Mm hmm. So pretty much what it is, is just kind of like when people are kind of like taught to be helpless, right? If you look at like the UN website or UNICEF, you'll see like it's very clear that unfortunately a lot of times in refugee camps, a lot of the people there rely heavily on nonprofits to supply them with water or with food or, you know, basic tools um, and educational resources. And people just kind of like we're putting people in positions where we're aiding them as we should be, but we're enabling them to remain helpless right right and so i think this is something very common in refugee camps and people not having access to basic resources that they rely heavily on um you know kind of gives nonprofits more reasons to kind of continue the work that they're doing and i think as a result people lose like independence and agency and they kind of like embrace helplessness at you know over time and so for me afro optimism is just something that i carry with me in every aspect of my life, because it's important for me to kind of keep in the back of my mind when I am doing projects for Horn of Hope, to kind of do it in a way where we're giving people the tools that they need to, you know, succeed. Um, I'll give you a good example. Um, When Yasmin and I were doing Horn of Hope, we, for a very long time, only focused on fundraising for clean water, because we really wanted to make sure we weren't just getting people, you know, bags of rice and water bottles we really wanted to make sure yo if we're going to invest in these regions let's give these people like water wells you know and by doing so we understood we were giving people an opportunity in particular women and girls opportunities Mm -hmm. to get to school we were saving up their time and we're just giving communities you know a sustainable solution now a lot of areas have access to wells that will last for years um and so i think When you, as an organization, are acknowledging that you want to be optimistic, um, I think it really opens the door for a lot of things. And so I think in a way, it forces people to kind of think about sustainability, because you're thinking positively about the long term, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it was just really important for us to be, to not be, you know, to be negative and to be pessimistic, because I think there's nothing wrong with it but we kind of need to break that chain um, as although I wasn't born in Somalia, um, you know, my mom was right. Mm-hmm. And I have, there's an obvious connection to that country and to the people there that I love and hold so close to my heart. Um, but I think what's happening, like you said, is there's a disconnect between the generations, people who are, you know, native in Somalia versus American, uh, you know, the diaspora here, mm-hmm. we don't see things very similarly. Um, I can't, like even imagine what it would be like to live in that sort of environment today right i would likely have to rely heavily on you know resources and i would right. probably be pessimistic and that's something completely out of most citizens' uh controls um because that's just the environment that they are raised in um and that's just you know they're viewing the world through a lens i cannot and so i really just try my very best to be as optimistic as possible and to have as much hope as they possibly can. Because I found often that oftentimes that when I do kind of get into that dark, you know, hole and I'm being very negative and I'm like, Oh, nothing's going to change. There's going to be another bombing. There's going to be like another war. Mm -hmm. There aren't enough nonprofits helping on the ground. Not enough people care. It's so easy to fall into that space and it really sucks. And it oftentimes it's forced me and my co founder to kind of take a, you know, break. But I think it's kind of knowing like, yo, there really aren't enough voices, there aren't enough resources, we have to be positive, and we have to get the education that we need, we need to build our network, so that we can get to a space where in a couple of years, if not sooner, we can really make the change that we want to see. And so I think just kind of really understanding the concept of learned helplessness, when discussing Afro optimism, and pessimism, I think is very important. Um, just kind of recognizing that people are helpless um, for reasons beyond their control. But on the opposite end, there's nothing really limiting us from helping them and giving them the tools that they need to be positive so that they can also view things through our lens as well, because it's very possible for communities that are suffering right now in refugee camps and around the world to escape the situations that they're in. But we cannot let, it won't happen if, as nonprofits we aren't giving them the tools that they need to succeed
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so last week i got the chance to talk to Ifra hashi Um, she's a hijabi somali american model and she and i talked a lot about the importance of representation for younger people so thinking about representation how is it for you knowing that you are a black muslim somali hijabi woman who works in the ohio senate And how did you find the courage, first of all, to pursue that position when you had so little representation to look up to when you were figuring out your own aspirations? And then now that you're in that position, just how important, can you just talk about how important representation is for other (laughs) black girls, Muslim girls, Somali girls, hijabi girls? And especially how having more representation in positions of power and really anywhere helps to fight the negative stereotypes that might follow the Black diaspora from Afro-pessimism, even though they're living in the U.S.? Yeah, it's
1: so important, Willow. It's so, so important. And again, it kind of ties back into that concept of framework, right? Um, just like so many young women our age in these countries don't have the representation that they deserve. Mm-hmm. We really need to work hard every day to kind of create those spaces because I've learned over the years, I sound like I'm 90, I'm not. <laughs> like I've learned over the years that, you know, like, sometimes i won't get an invitation to join the table so i really just need to bring a chair myself and join it that's exactly so, what ifra said that's so cool yeah no for real it's so it's so true right like i went to the glenn college of public affairs here in ohio i graduated literally last year Congratulations. um again. yep thank you <laughs> i graduated in um my minored also in nonprofit studies and today i'm serving as a board member for power um, which is a bipartisan um, program for women and girls that empowers women to run for office at Ohio State, right? Oh, which wow. Crazy. And I'm sitting on this board with, you know, the co founder of the Ohio Lobbying Association and the co founder, um, or the founder and CEO right now of, um, well, not the founder, but the CEO and the current president of like, you know, the uh, Ohio Bar, you know, association, and just really phenomenal woman with crazy track records and I'm like what did I deserve to sit here Mm -hmm. but it was I'm literally the only black Muslim woman on that board I'm the only black person and I'm the only person under 25 right Mm -hmm. and it's it was so heartwarming when I got the invitation and the call to be a part of this board at this huge institution because I've been in so many spaces I forced myself into spaces that I wouldn't have been invited to Mm -hmm. and I think me forcing those networking opportunities and me putting my voice out there really, you know, showed so many people like, hey, we really need to stop, you know, limiting others and we really need to we really need to embrace the fact that it's time for us to step up as well as white women, as you know, women who aren't of color Mm -hmm. to give to empower other women. And so for me it was it was a really good opportunity and I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to this year to really empowering more women to run for office and to really um, being a part of these cool conversations at Ohio State um, because I'm really hoping that I can get more black women a seat at the table. I'm hoping that I can Mm -hmm. get more Muslim women to be proud of being visibly Muslim, right? These are all things that I am holding dear to me because these are all of my identities and I am a minority within a minority and so it's never going to be easy. I don't think I'll ever walk into a room completely confident I, it just isn't going to be possible, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping that I can reach a place where I'm not as intimidated and that I'm always reassuring myself that I belong. Um, But to kind of answer your question, I, when I graduated from OSU last spring, um, you know, most seniors, you know, they get into a job searching stage and everyone's even searching for jobs weeks before even graduation. And So as I was kind of doing that process, Um, I was getting a lot of recommendations for people like, hey, you know, you've been a leader in the community, you should really consider um, working for the state, you should really look for federal jobs. I so badly wanted to remain in the nonprofit sector, because at the time I was uh, an intern for the Ohio Women's um, Fund. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to remain in the nonprofit sector. But there was I felt a calling and I was like, you know what, just give this a try. Just get into the public sector for a little bit. And really see if you can make a difference, you know, working for the state. And so I had the opportunity to work for a really incredible black senator um, who really empowered me. And it was really important for me to do so because I'm telling you if I if I was, you know, an aide for a white male, for example, I don't think I would have been able to grow and I don't think I would have gotten the mentorship that I needed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm still at the center right now. And, you know, I'm with with, um, the state's first Asian senator. Um, And so just, I'm literally seeing things unfold before me. I'm seeing history be made in front of me. Um, And it's because women like my boss are also saying enough is enough. And I'm going to, we need representation in the Asian community. Mm -hmm. Just as I believe we need more representation in the African communities. Um, And so that's really where it starts, Willow. I got the courage to seek a position of, you know, at the Senate because I knew how important it was for representation um, across the board, and I was also empowered by other women to really pursue a job like this. And I'm so happy that I did because now I'm able to, from a state level, when I do have to deal with constituent cases, um, I can. I'm always thinking of my community first. Um, and in return, I think a lot of Somali people in the city are really able to um, say, you know what, we have someone who's also, you know, working in our district, um, and it just gives people like comfort to know that they're being represented as well, even if it's just through staff. Um, I think it really goes a long way.
0: Yeah, and it's so important now because anyone who can now see you in that position automatically has someone that they can look up to if. if- You, if you look more like them than everyone else. And I think that that's something that Ifran and I talked about that white people and especially white men really take for granted that no matter where we look, we see people who look like us. And so we never have a reason to believe, at least based on the color of our skin, that we can't do something. And that's so, so important. So definitely, like, congratulations. And thank you for being that representation for other people. Um, And so now I want to talk about yet another area that you're doing a lot of work in which is i know that most recently you've been fighting a lot for women's rights especially in the somali diaspora as somalia is going through its own me too movement along with nigeria and other african countries who are seeing hordes of victims right now come forward with their stories which is really amazing so i was wondering what do you think the effect of being a cultural religious or racial minority as a refugee has on the refugee community's visibility with other problems that come up like disabilities sexual assault lgbtq mm-hmm. discrimination um and like kind of like you were saying earlier being a minority within a minority what do you think happens to those other issues disabilities sexual assault discrimination when you're already a refugee and you're already <sighs> discriminated against because of just that uh,
1: it's so interesting that you asked this question because as you know, I, I was doing a podcast, um, you know, not long ago and I was giving stats, right. Mm-hmm. explaining to people that a 5.9% of, you know, rape allegations are false. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that even that statistic isn't completely accurate because it varies right within different demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at like communities where, you know, women are black and they're Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many cultural things going on that people just don't understand. That's really silencing women. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example. Like, you know, being a black Muslim woman, right? Um, religion and culture definitely plays a huge part in, you know, kind of enabling some of these taboos and some of these things that are really making women not come forward. Um, and unfortunately, there are so many communities and cultures that kind of enable that negative you know, way of thinking and belief s- systems, and it sucks, but that's just a reality for so many women. And mm-hmm. so I don't feel that all women are represented equally in these stats. And I'm really hoping that that changes um, because there are so many women who aren't reporting. There are so many women who aren't coming out and sharing their experiences. And I think this Me Too movement is so powerful because people are using social media as a tool. Right? We're just speaking about how people are using social media as a tool to fundraise and to bring attention to, attention to important cultures mm-hmm. or efforts, right? But we're seeing now that a lot of women are taking agency and they're taking control of their narrative and they're saying, you know what? No, I'm not a victim. I am a survivor. I don't care if my community is shaming me for speaking out. I'm going to speak out and this is how I'm going to do it on my platform. And so I, I know I've personally been so, so inspired. Um, by so many women who have came out recently but it it's also really it's a really painful thing to see women not getting the support that they need and yeah. unfortunately even getting retaliation for speaking up because the yeah. environments that they are unfortunately in again they're it's perpetrating these negative habits um against women and it's really unfortunate but i'm i know i personally am so well aware of this as a woman first but then being a Black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing how hard it is to even be visible and to be heard. And then stopping being Muslim on top of that, right? Right. <laughs> and having, like... And obviously, I re- love my religion. Of course, like, yeah. We need to be real, right? Like, culture and religion and all these things. Um, Unfortunately, not everyone practices it the same. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men take advantage of controlling women. And a lot of men, unfortunately, are still thinking that they have the right to tell women how to think, how to feel, how to act, how to live. And unfortunately, that's, look where we're at today. And so for me personally, when I, just like you, when I saw this movement kind of like happening on social media, I acted quickly and I was like, you know what, let me try and get a resource sheet together. Let me try and create a network of women close to me um, and on social media so that we, we can really empower and help each other out. And the community was really quick to act with me. And we were able to get a resource sheet out for my community here in Ohio. But I'm also aware that there are so many women out there that may not have access to networks. And it really sucks. But I'm really hoping that people are also inspired by what's happening on social media right now and coming forward. Um, and so it's it's been a lot this week, honestly.
0: Yeah. And for anyone listening who wants to check that out I know that the resource sheet that you're talking about is on your Twitter and it's probably elsewhere but um Anissa does talk about almost everything that we've talked about during this episode on her Twitter her Twitter is Anissa's tweet so definitely check her out there um that brings us to the last question that I ask at the end of every episode which is can you recall an act of kindness that someone has done for you that you think is exemplary of how we should all treat people who are different from us
1: yeah absolutely um (sighs) I, this wasn't something very recent, but I want to say two years ago, I was visiting a friend who worked at a childcare center and one of her, I didn't have a ride that day. Like I just did not have access to transportation that day. I Mm -hmm. didn't have anything. And the woman who was working there was a really amazing Hispanic woman with three kids. And I I, I could tell she was struggling, right? Mm Mm-hmm and that isn't an an assumption. She had a vehicle, but I, I hesitated to ask her to give me a ride um, just because I didn't want to bombard her. She had kids, Mm -hmm. but she saw me kind of standing outside and she asked me if I needed a ride. And I said, yes. And when I asked her where she lived, she lived like 38 minutes opposite direction in our city. Like you need a car to get around. We don't really have proper public transportation. And so you know, I, when she said, when she told me where she lived, I kind of felt bad. Um, and I offered to pay for her gas, Mm -hmm. but she completely, you know, was like, no, I want to do this. It's fine. And she gave me a ride and we were having like a really amazing conversation and not to get into her situation, but she was just going through so much, right. Mm -hmm. As a single mom, as someone who isn't a, who hasn't received a citizenship yet, just she was going through so much in her life yet she was able to think about me first um and so that that really moved me personally and it it really made me upset because I know there are so many people out there that are racist and you know just aren't really open-minded and just don't want to even show a willingness to be compassionate to others and it really really sucks because um, this individual was so thoughtful and Um, very protective and they went out of their way to help me out Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a moment that was just so warming for me personally and um, you know till this day I try and check in on her and her family and her kids but like you know in that moment I wanted to do so much more like I just really appreciated that someone who had not enough was willing to give so much for her time and um, you know to give me a ride uh, when she didn't owe me anything I guess but for me, that was a really cool moment. And I really, really appreciated that act of kindness. Um, it just kind of, you know, it made me really happy. And, and I, I, I really know that there's so many great people out there that are willing to go the extra mile for others. And so just as humans, I really just want to,
0: um, I'm really inspired by so many people. Wow, that's a beautiful story. And it, I think, speaks volumes about, like you were, t- like you were saying, different people's mentalities about helping people and And despite not, despite having her own struggles, still giving you a ride. And even though that seems insignificant to her or even maybe to you at the time, I mean, years later, I don't know how much time has passed, but time has passed and you're still thinking about it. So that's really beautiful. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Nisa. I'm so inspired by all the work that you do. And this has been such a great conversation. So thank you so, so, so much.
1: Thank you so much, Will, for having me. I am so excited to continue to support Epimonia and learn more about it. Um, as the years continue and so thank you again so much for having me and I really hope you guys
0: uh, have a phenomenal fourth guest <laughs> <laughs> thank you that was Epimonia's Safer Room podcast with Anissa Bond. the music in this podcast was produced and performed by Elvis J, a refugee from Malawi now living in the U.S. and the cover art was designed and submitted by Samuel Nassabamana a Congolese refugee now, li- now living in Rwanda so thank you to the both of them as well once again, you guys can visit our website, epimonia.com, or visit us at Mn on Instagram to learn more and support the cause. Thank you for listening.